So, yeah, let's get started. Why don't you give our listeners a quick introduction to who you are before we get started? Sure. My name is Josh Wolf. I recently graduated from the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism with an emphasis in documentary film. And I'm a freelance journalist who both writes, does video, takes photos, and does a little radio or anything else I can finish that you do to cover my rent. <laughs> yeah, the, the world of investigative journalism doesn't pay too well these days um, if you want to be and you know if you want to have integrity um, so let's talk a little bit how the advertisers don't like attacking the corporate sponsors like, y- yeah, they don't yeah. Get it. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um, Josh let's go back to 2005 I know you've told this story probably hundreds of times but I think it's a really important one to get out there especially in the age you know cracking down on whistleblowers and the chilling effect on journalists today let's talk a little bit about what happened to you um just from the beginning sure so i kind of started out in journalism by filming protests and one day i filmed a protest against the g8 summit i think it was july 8 2005 and the g8 summit at the time which is one of the eight largest countries gathered together to plan economic policy. That was going on in Glen Eagle, Scotland. But there was a solidarity march in San Francisco. And I filmed the march, and for the most part, it was like any other anti-authoritarian anarchist march, but there was an altercation with uh, a police officer that was patrolling, not part of the, the riot squad following the protest, but a separate officer who didn't know what was going on. And during that altercation, which I didn't actually see, a police officer ended up with a fractured skull. This led to the FBI subpoenaing me for my videotape and testimony about anyone who I might have known that was there, to which I refused to cooperate. Felt like McCarthyism, uh, red scares, more anarchist scare, but basically it felt like the federal government swooping in and trying to get at whatever information they could about those engaging in dissent in the Bay Area. So I resisted and then spending a fair amount of time in jail, um, mainly because we don't have a federal shield law. In California, there's something called state uh, shield law, which says that if you're a journalist, you don't have to testify in certain circumstances about your material that you're reporting on. But in the federal context, there isn't such a law, and the protections are much, much more limited. And you ended up spending 226 days in prison, correct? That's that's the number of people tell <laughs> I'm sure it seemed endless. Jesus. So you were, I mean, what did you do there? Or did you just like school yourself on, on what the hell was going on? I mean, it seems like a lot of time to just kind of contemplate what you had done. Would you have done it any other way if you went looking back? I mean, so in terms of what I did there, there was an element that this was a great primer on how the justice system, if you want to call it that, works. Um, discovering that basically we have this sort of 21st century slave machine where we, you know, take people who are undocumented immigrants and throw them in, in prison for usually four years while we make them do work without being paid for it. And then once we use their labor for four years, we send them back to a country where they often know nobody and don't even speak the language in some cases. It was certainly an eye-opening experience for that. and had a lot of time to talk to prisoners, as well as do a lot of reading, a lot of uh, correspondence with the people on the outside as well. You asked another question, but I don't remember it anymore. 
Yeah, no, that you pretty much answered it. Um, yeah, investigating more into the privatization of prisons, it's pretty shocking um, to see how they're using prison slave labor to just produce a whole bunch of shit. <clears throat> Even aircraft, like weapons components and stuff for the defense industry, which is really shocking. Um, yeah, I mean, the federal system has to be looked at separately from private prisons, separately from the state prison. Um, there is a somewhat limited amount of private enterprises being done with federal prison labor, but there's a lot of stuff like the chairs that you sat in in your elementary school class. Those were made by prison labor. Um, there's a lot of sort of government furniture, those sorts of things that are done by prison labor as well as uh, telephone, like uh, telephone sales of some sort is being done in the federal prisons through whatever the agency that sets up federal prison is. Yeah, there's something that just doesn't sit well with me, knowing that, you know, you, you grow up thinking like, oh, prisoners make our license plates, but you don't really realize the extent of what they're actually making. Um, let's go back to your case, though. Sorry for getting off track. So, so Josh, after you got out, did you... you you did a brief uh, mayoral run against Gavin Newsom. What made you want to do that? Well, there's a combination of things. I mean, I certainly sort of put my foot down as a journalist, but I also didn't want to concede the idea that as a journalist, I no longer had an investment as a citizen in the world that I lived in, um, that I wasn't about to simply become a conduit for information, that there was still a me inside me. Um, and what I really, really wanted to do was work on video, let's just call it video propaganda, for whoever the progressive candidate that was going to be out to take on Gavin Newsom would have been, but then that candidate never materialized. For whatever reason, I decided that it was the best bet to just charge in myself. That's great. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, and let's talk about what happened to you when you went to graduate school. You had another altercation with uh, the federal government, didn't you? Where they tried to subpoena you for more information and you were almost suspended? Um, or, sort of not exactly. Okay, tell me, tell me um, what happened. I guess we could say I had a conversation with the state government. If you want to say that the UC system itself is part of our state government, which it is. Right. Um, but the, the Fed didn't really have anything to do with it, neither did the law. Um, I was building up for, uh, an occupation of Wheeler Hall, which is one of the lecture halls at UC Berkeley's campus. Um, they sort of came in, locked it down with spike locks and rope and, and tied it off and tried to keep the police at bay, and they did for somewhere at least 12 hours. And then everyone inside, including myself, despite the press passed around my neck, and I showed to the officers. We were all cited, um, put in handcuffs, processed inside Wheeler Hall, and then released to the, the crowd that had gathered outside. Now, the district attorney didn't file charges against anyone, but the university decided to pursue disciplinary charges against each of the people in the building who were students, including myself, despite the fact that the reason I was there was to document what happened. Right. And what ended up happening? Um, well, I spent the next 18 months fighting this thing, and I think it was two days before graduation, maybe three days before graduation, after two five- or six-hour-long hearings, 
they decided that my punishment was, well, at first they said that I should get a warning and should be required to write a proposal for how the university should um, respect the rights of journalists because they acknowledged that the code didn't really respect these, these needs right. for, for the free press. And they said that I have the mastery to, to come up with a solution. And then they basically forced me to, to do this work under the threat of not receiving my diploma. So basically it was like coercive contractual work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it seems like this is just going along with the whole chilling effect on college campuses that you see everywhere. We have these free speech zones now. You're not allowed to really protest in, on, on certain areas of the campus. Uh, would you say that this is uh, an extension of that chilling effect that, that kind of got hammered down on you? You know, I'm, I'm disinclined to, to love those two together for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do fortunately not have free speech zones at UC Berkeley. They limit free speech everywhere. Yeah. Um, home of the free speech movement, yes, progress was made what it was like in the 1950s. But as much forward as we've gone, we've also gone backwards. And, you know, they didn't finish what needed to be done in 1950. So there's still work that to be done in terms of free speech, but I don't really see this so much as an example of that as this, like, unfortunate bureaucracy where no one feels empowered to do anything, and they're all sort of chugging along with this weird concept of, like, well, it doesn't say that journalists have a right to be somewhere filming something, therefore they don't have a right to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no ability to throw this case out. Um, I must find you guilty because you admitted yourself that at one point you were working on a school paper instead of filming the entire time. Um, I mean, it was basically like all these people, no one with any sort of authority whatsoever exercised their authority to say, look, we're spending thousands of dollars give this guy, this journalist at our school, a slap on the wrist <laughs> for doing exactly what he came to school to do. Right. And that's the real travesty in this, is the school, the entire state completely broke. I'm completely in debt for going to this university. And they probably spent more than I paid in trying to give me a warning. Do you think it was trying to set an example to prevent other journalists from doing that? Or do you think that they were just lazy and, and that's why they had you kind of make these new bylaws? I mean, it's just so weird that they had you do that as a penalty. It's like, well, then you should write something that will protect future journalists. It just seems very, I don't know. I mean, what do you think the motive was really? Was it laziness or was it trying to set an example? I mean, I don't think it's quite laziness or simply about setting an example. I mean, we're dealing with, with sort of the brutalness of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with, like, people that are acting out of a malevolent and a place of power. We're dealing with, like, automatons mm-hmm. who are doing what they think they're supposed to do, and the realities of the world around them is kind of irrelevant to the task of handling Josh, what do you what do you say to people who say, you know, 
I've heard I've had people tell me before, oh, you're you know, you call yourself an activist and a journalist. And isn't that kind of a contradictory thing to be? Um, what would you say to that? Because I know that you're a First Amendment rights activist as well as an investigative journalist. Do you find the two contradictory? I don't find the two contradictory at all. I think that, that it, it can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that while you're trying to report on what happened and also say what you want it to happen, that that's a treacherous zone that, that can be executed well and, and also not work well. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, at the end of the day, is it like, is objectivity the most important trait of journalism? Or is it to be a voice for the voiceless? to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Two different schools of thought. And, you know, if I was looking for a stenographer to say that the two opposing sides are equal, I can do that myself by reading both sides of the propaganda. I don't need the reporter to to summarize two pieces of propaganda. Right. Exactly. That's a great way to put it, man. So I watched, I got a chance to watch your documentary last night. The only complaint that I have is that it was too short. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was great. And I liked how you gave the cops a chance to explain themselves and you really personalized the police officers. And it wasn't just telling, you know, one side of the story. You really gave them a chance to speak about the program. Could you talk a little bit about police tape? Um, what did you go into the project wanting to portray and just tell us a little bit about the film? Well, I guess the the project kind of began when I realized trying to come up with what to make my thesis film about at school. And there's this WikiLeaks thing going on and that looks really attractive, but that would involve flying to Europe. That seemed to work. And then I realized that we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Rodney King videotape. And everywhere I'm looking, we're seeing being arrested for, for taping the police, and now Oakland's trying to put cameras on, on on their officers. And in Detroit, there's a case where a police officer shot someone and it was captured on film, but nobody's seen the footage that the reality TV show is filming. So it's like suddenly the issues that, that, that really I became aware of 20 years ago as a very young child um, have just magnified, and I started to explore that and was able to arrange a ride-along with the Oakland police and, and kind of explore their camera program. And then it was sort of almost a literal quest that you see in the film about trying to figure out, what does this mean? Is it good that everything that the police say and do is recorded? Or is it bad that everything we do in front of the police is being as part of their surveillance? Like, Right, right. How do you deal with this? Right. And, and the, you know, the surveillance state that we're living under, it seems like people are just accustomed to being filmed the second that they walk out of their house. And so it is it is this weird chilling effect where people have just accepted the surveillance state and this increased surveillance everywhere you go. And the cops seem to in, in the film, the cops seem to be like, well, you know, it almost seemed like they were justifying it as so another Oscar Grant thing doesn't have to happen again like well now we'll we'll be able to show an un- unfiltered view but like you point on the film you couldn't have access to the tapes that you went on the ride along with so it's like well if we can't have access to the tapes and what is the point really i mean it seems like the cops are going to suppress the the release of these tapes if there is some circumstance where we do need to see them 
Like in this case, I you're mean, talking about the other state. I, I do think that, that the way the Oakland system is developed, those states will be made available in most serious situations at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that when those tapes are available and the hurdles that will be required to make those tapes available mean that the person who doesn't have a lawyer who gets harassed by the cops, let's face it, most people who get harassed by the cops aren't economically sound to just call their lawyer and, and drop a few thousand dollars to file some paper. Right. Um, won't be able to subpoena the footage. It's only the cases where police behavior is really egregious that it rises to the potential criminal that people are going to have those resources to subpoena the footage. It should be accessible through a public records request. It doesn't look like that's the case. And the requirement to subpoena the footage in a case like an Oscar Grant situation, um, in a case like the, the shooting in, um, in Hunter's Point with the police officers, how quickly will that footage be made available to the public? Mm-hmm. Because the public's reaction has a direct correlation to whether or not the district attorney pursues charges in these sorts of situations. Right. Yeah, exactly. Public pressure, public reaction. Um, it all goes along with with how the case proceeds. Um, can you talk a little bit about you were talking in the in the film about there are three states that have actually made it illegal and have slapped felony charges on people who have filmed the police. Could you e- expand more on that? I mean, the good news is that for the most part, it looks like we're down to Illinois. Um, in Maryland, prosecutors have filed charges against people for taking the police. There was actually a National Guardsman who was facing 15 years. But when he came to court, the judge basically said, this is insane. Of course, he's protected by his First Amendment rights. And that was the end of that. I don't think there's been any new uh, actual prosecutions in Illinois. Uh, the situation in Massachusetts, or in, I'm sorry, in Maryland, the situation in Massachusetts um, looks like it's still probably illegal to, to record the police with uh, surreptitiously, but it does appear that as long as there is no effort to hide the recording equipment, that that should be protected. Uh, you know, it can change at any moment, but it looks okay. In Illinois, there's at least two individuals that are facing many years in prison for simply recording the police. In one case, um, captured in my film, there was an artist who was trying to protest the laws so you couldn't sell art in Chicago, and he had a recorder on to document the arrest. Um, he's facing charges. And in the other case, we're dealing with a, a, a woman who was being harassed by the police and recorded them for the sake of protecting herself against this harassment and is now facing charges. It's just a it's just a very scary precedent, Josh, because like your film pointed out, I mean, this is our right as people living in this country. We have a right to be watchdogs of the cops. And with with the so much egregious expansion of police power, uh, we just saw this uh, the Supreme Court ruling where now cops can enter someone's home um, without a warrant if they suspect something is going on. Um, there's just so many different instances of, of egregious police power and the expansion of police power. And it just seems like a very scary precedent to set um, in any state. And it's very, very 
terrifying to think that we might be prevented from being able to film police especially seeing what happened with the oscar grant case and it was because of the people filming that we were able to you know get the truth out about that and it just seems like how many more cases are going to happen <clears throat> before more laws are slapped down in different states and we're not able to do this i mean it's it's no telling there the, the biggest concern is these situations where the police feel that they should create a situation where they can film you and you can't film them now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if we have the right to film them, then you can make a case that they have the right to film us, but it's really important that these, the footage is, is handled in an appropriate way. Public footage, it belongs to the public. Right. If it's your private material to protect yourself, your private material that you should be able to protect in addition to protecting yourself. Does it seem, it seems like in our parents' generation growing up, it seemed like the police force was a security blanket. And if you saw a cop, it was like, okay, now I feel safe. And now it seems like the opposite is true. It seems like when I, when I see a policeman, I almost get scared now. I mean, it's just, there's so many cases of police abuse and um, corruption where do you think that disconnect is? It seems like, you know, in, in your film police tape, these police officers are so nice and and they care about their jobs so much and they care about protecting people and helping the public. And um, I just don't understand where that disconnect happened, where we really need to be working together with the police. If we want to fight this this corruption at a federal level it seems like the police need to be on our side but there's this huge disconnect with the public and the police and we're scared of the police and the police are almost on the defense and and that's where all this is coming from where do you think that that stems from well i mean i think that historically police have not been helpful for many components of our our community Mm -hmm. um you know the policeman is still a nice helpful figure for the middle-aged, upper-class white woman trying to cross the street or asking for directions, and that's not going to change. Right. Um, And the police have always been seen as a problem and an invader amongst working-class communities of color, and that hasn't changed either. Um, Perhaps your perception has changed as you have sort of discovered new communities you weren't part of as a child necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I think that this is an issue that's been going on probably forever. And what it comes down to is that the people that the police encounter on their day-to-day shift, in many cases, they don't see them as part of their community. They don't live in the community that they patrol. They cops patrolling Oakland, the cops patrolling San Francisco. They live out in Vallejo. They live out in Peninsula. They don't live in the communities that they work in. So these aren't their fellow neighbors these are those people that they've been hired to corral into obedience, into following whatever rules that they feel they should be following. And it's a, it's a simple matter of police not seeing their fellow human being as simply that, their fellow human being. It's them seeing themselves as being in charge of keeping those people in line. Right. And as long as we have that relationship, we're going to have these problems. Well, how do you think that relationship can be bridged? I mean, my personal favorite idea for, for ultimate utopian <laughs> police 
police would be to go to a volunteer unpaid police force with professional oversight. So we take all the cops and offer them jobs as managers, overseeing and making sure that the unpaid police who are from the community don't act out of line. Because if you're, if anyone can be an officer and it's just basically, you know, you make sure that if people need help, you deal with that and you connect service and this sort of thing. And, you know, you get to drive around in the car or whatever. And we have professional oversight. Then there's not going to be this, like, motivation to get, say, $100,000 in peace for a lot. And you're going to have someone watching you who's getting paid to make sure that you're not yeah. I don't know whether that's a, a practical solution, but, you know, I don't hear about people complaining about volunteer fire departments in small towns and that sort of thing. And we still have that system. Why can't we see what it's like to have an unpaid police force with professional oversight? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Um my boyfriend watched the movie with me last night and he was he's from Rhode Island, a pretty small town, and he grew up being abused by police officers nonstop. I mean he was uh he had the shit beaten out of him with his own skateboard numerous times for just simply skating you know and he was just talking about the uniformity it seems like all across the country and it's going along with what you just pointed out is how it, it seems like ca- this this has never changed and you're right it is my perception from growing up in the white suburb of Pleasanton um and then now living in Oakland and it seems like now I'm just becoming more aware of the corruption um in the police force, but this has been, this has been a problem for decades. And I can't help but think is, is it systematic within the training of police officers to have that conditioning where you are separate from those who are, you, you are patrolling, you know, you're kind of conditioned to not be on that same level. Well, I mean, my understanding is that the modern police force is a direct descendant of the Pinkerton detective agency which was primarily used, I mean, they did a lot of stuff actually, but one of the, what they're known for is for basically breaking up labor, intimidating working class union folks, and attacking them for, for strikes and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're coming from this idea that's about, you know, controlling the working class people. You don't see you know, you don't see police in pack heights arresting people for sipping a Chardonnay on their belt. But you do see people in the poor parts of town getting hassled for their can of beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where can people, I mean, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, any last words before we talk about where people can find more about you and your movie? I mean, I'm not sure what, what what's a good point to end on, but I mean, I'll bring up the fact I'll bring up the fact that, that I like bring up many interviews, which is that like this conversation, everything they're hearing, all comes from a perspective, including the establishment media that they watch on CNN or Fox News or wherever they tune in, and that like we need to be skeptical consumers of information and realize that everyone has a point of view, everyone has a bias, and we should. Keep that in mind as we make conclusions about what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people find your movie? When is it coming out? So my movie will be uh, 
featured in the Sarasota Doc Fest in October. Um, I've entered a bunch of festivals right now. We'll be continuing to enter more. I've got a website, policetapesmovie.com. There's not a whole lot there yet, um, but I'll keep updating that with new opportunities to see the films. And, of course, my own website, joshbulls.net, has stuff where you can find me on Facebook. And where can people, journalists who are independently operating, like me with Media Roots or you as an independent investigative journalist right now, where can people find out their rights as a journalist when they're embarking on citizen journalism in their area? Is there a good source that you can recommend online for people? There's a number of really great sources. Um, The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press is a great starting point for just sort of what the rights are in your state. Um, I believe that's rcs.org. Um, and then the Berkman Law Center at Harvard has created this amazing citizen journalism um, curriculum and support for citizen and independent journalists that find themselves in stocks and legal trouble to get the legal support they need through this great network of uh, First Amendment attorneys that they've developed across the country. And that's the Berkman Center. Um, I think it's like Fit Media Law, T-I-E-T-I-A Law. Google that. Yeah, there's a couple blogs that really come to mind. Um, Carlos Miller at carlosmiller.com runs Photography is Not a Crime, which seems pretty much on top of every situation where people are denied or arrested or can't film in public. Um, every single story of my film, I believe, was profiled first on Carlos' website. Great. Um, Cop Block is another site that has a lot of active information about how people trying to film the police or protect citizens against police um, violence and intimidation mm-hmm. are squaring off and the conflict around that. So copblock.org, carlosmower.com are both two great places to sort of stay in the loop on these. Fantastic. And is there, and one last thing, is there anything that we can do to make sure to actively be preventing a law um, in California about that? Or is that not something that we should be worrying about quite yet? I think it's far more important to just utilize the fact that we can record police. Mm-hmm. Probably everyone or more than half the people listening to this program have a camera on their phone Mm -hmm. and they're going to see a police officer doing something somewhere between now and the end of the year, the end of the month. And like, it's almost their civic duty to, to be that eye after what happens. Because when you're faced with the police confronting you, don't you want someone there Mm -hmm. after what happens in case things don't go as they should. Absolutely. Like what happened to the the disabled homeless man, uh, Mr. Kelly, I think his name. <laughs> Robbie, Robbie. Yeah, in Fullerton, that was a horrific situation. Yeah, and, and, you know, I know people were there filming the aftermath, but, geez, it's just... If, if people weren't there filming, I mean, we might not ever know what really happened. And thank God people were there able to film and get interviews directly after that. But yeah, I mean, it's people's civic duty. We need to be filming police officers. We need to be cataloging what's going on. We need to be the eyes and ears because our media sure as fuck isn't doing it. And so that's why it's just very important for us to be an active role in this, you know, this new citizen journalism movement. And when it comes to the police, 
the recording realm really is the difference between night and day. Um, uh, Oscar Grant was shot by Johannes Meserly with several cameras running, although many people were not satisfied with the verdict of the amount of time he spent in, in prison. He did, he was found criminally responsible for the act. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, two years later, two and a half years later, um, an officer, another BART officer, shoots and kills Charles Hill at the Civic Center platform. My understanding is that officer is back with his gun patrolling BART today because there was no footage of it. Witnesses seem to describe a man lurching like Frankenstein slowly three three shots prior to killing this man. But because there's no video, there isn't that same outrage, there isn't that same response. And at this point, the district attorney has made no indication that they're looking to, to uh, file charges against that officer. Wow. Yeah, I think a lot of people also might be confused because of these different cases that are happening all over the country where we're hearing people are getting in trouble for filming cops. I think people are still confused of whether or not they can and where they're able to. And I like that um, the woman that you interviewed in the in the movie, she just said, yeah, absolutely. People can film police officers. And I think that's really important um, for people to realize that <laughs> you not only can, but you should. Um and don't be afraid to do that. And if we just can't live in fear, I mean, this whole chilling effect on Warren whistleblowers and, and the police state that we're living in, we just have to, yeah, we just can't let fear rule us. And we really need to get out there and start reporting on what's going on. So thank you for your journalistic integrity. I find it extremely inspiring. And thank you for everything you've done, Josh. I'll definitely be following your work and we'll link to, to everything that you've done on, on the SoundCloud timeline right now. Thanks, Thanks Josh. Thanks for having me on your show.